At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli, coming to you live from separate locations. Futures have been in a tight range all morning long as the market weighs the tension, as Kudlow just said, of reopening the economy. U.S. COVID cases top 3 million, 60,000 new cases in a single day for the first time. Oil's holding 40, gold topping 1,800 for the first time since 2011. Uh, David, it was a quiet calendar already going into this week, but it does seem like today, uh, in terms of looking for inputs, traders are really on their own this morning. They are. I mean, you know, the only calendar, uh, Carl, that really seems to be getting busy and staying busy is the IPO calendar, which we should mention as well, just because it is at least some sort of a reflection of demand in certain parts of this market. Uh, The latest, of course, Rocket Mortgage. That's going to be an enormous IPO. We can talk a bit about that later if you guys want. But other than that, not that much to key off of. And clearly, Mike, this is not a market that seems to be particularly concerned in terms of keying off of the rising cases of COVID that we're seeing around the country. And the reversal of reopenings, the slowdown in business, certainly in travel, leisure, restaurants, that is resulting from the rising caseload. Yeah, there's no particular number that comes out that uh, is is reacted to in a dramatic way. There's no sense of urgency around it, except it is incrementally. I think there's wear and tear, and you can see it if you ha- if you look below the surface of the market. That's why you know the financials and the cyclical stocks and the uh, the real kind of traditional consumer plays are struggling and uh, industrials are struggling versus things like semiconductors and anything digital. So maybe you can see in the way the market's differentiating among uh, perceived winners and losers the fact that it's uh, it's a long slog. It seems to be the uh, implied message of the markets for, for most of, uh, of the economy uh, as to whether it would uh, be the kind of thing that's going to reach a threshold level that's going to take the entire market um, by surprise and, uh, and and drop it. It's not evident just now. It does more, seem more like uh, a, a selective uh, market with a lot of push-pull inside of it. It's kind of trapped in a little bit of a, of a trading range right now. Yesterday, market just kind of got weighed down in the afternoon as Treasury yields refused to get out of their own way. They kind of went down a little more, mm-hmm. and that means growth stocks can work, uh, but the rest of it just uh, just kind of uh, kind of gave way, Carl. Yeah, uh, to that point, uh, Cashin this morning, uh, Mike, weighing in on the, the late day action yesterday, says we might be at an important junction uh, this morning. Will the market simply revert to the consolidating waffle action that we saw in prior weeks? There's some concern, he says, that uh, the bulls failed to seize the initiative uh, after those uh, few sessions where it did seem like cyclicals were going to get back on board. And by the way, we should mention uh, this morning, you know, we had Freeport with a pretty solid pre-announce the other morning. Uh, this morning, it's Alcoa with an upside uh, Q2 pre-announcement. So there are, I mean, there is ammunition there. Just a matter of whether or not they're going to put it in the barrel. 
That's true. Uh, now, you arguably, the Bears lost their opportunity, too, just a little while back. I mean, the market just refused to go below 3000 on the S&P 500. You mentioned, uh, you know, Alcoa and Freeport. Look at the price of copper. Uh, it's actually been outperforming gold, which everyone is talking about right now for a little while. So the rest of the world, to, to the extent that uh, things like China are, are getting back to work, maybe that's got certain influences on parts of, of our market and some companies. Uh, but it is true, though, that in general, there hasn't been this broad impetus to say, now that we've come to this level, um, all of a sudden, we're going to start buying the stuff that, uh, that's going to do well in a better economy. I, I don't necessarily think there's a, there's a real edge in terms of deciding which way the next few percent is, except that, you know, to, to Art's point, uh, the market really did just kind of shuttle back to the upper end of this range and, uh, and you know, kind of waiting for the next thing uh, that's going to capture its attention. David, um, on the bankruptcy front, uh, stories last night about AMC trying to work out a deal to avoid that fate. This morning, it's Brooks Brothers and reports about Asina, the Ann Taylor parent. Uh, but clearly, the circles of concern around retail and travel are going to remain. Without a doubt. And listen, these are the areas that have been a concern from the beginning. Um, unfortunately, the economy has not been able to fully reopen. Those companies that were on the cusp or that did have a good amount of leverage, many of them retailers, many of them was the, uh, the previous subject of a leverage buyout, which added uh, debt to their balance sheets, have already to some extent filed, whether it's a Neiman Marcus or a J. Crew. Brooks Brothers, we've had the CEO on a number of times. Again, not perhaps a surprise there as well, unfortunate though it is. Uh, this has accelerated a trend. We've said it so many times that we may have seen the outcome of in three, four, five years in the space of months. Um, but retail was already under pressure. The, you, the continued focus, you point out, Mike, you know, I can look at the broader market and say, well, it's not reacting. But of course, within that, as you say, there certainly is um, a, a reaction in some areas. And REITs is another one where we'll continue to watch closely as a result of how the malls will do. We were talking for years about the slow decline of the mall, so to speak. The question is whether that has been truly and fully accelerated. One would expect that be the case when you continue to lose anchor tenants, or at least when many of them go bankrupt, restructure, and close stores as a result of that. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sense in here that we're waiting for some critical uh, break, maybe, in some of these sectors. I think, you know, people complain about the extreme concentration of the U.S. market in five stocks or well over 20 percent of the S&P 500. Well, turn that upside down and all the stuff that really looks like trouble points are actually very much underrepresented in terms of the market value, right? Traditional retail outside the superstores, it's pretty trivial. You can't find anything bigger than a mid-cap, really, in, uh, in mall stores or anything like that. Uh, even real estate, obviously an important sector for a lot of individual investors, but not something that moves the overall market and also kind of is going to move with bonds to some degree, too. So it's it's in a weird way. One of the things that people believe is the big risk uh, is that this hyper concentration of the market is also insulating it from a lot of these macro uh, influences, Carl. You know, uh, Mike, speaking of debt, uh, B of A has an interesting note out this morning in which they basically argue that uh, what they're calling bond tourists are going to leave by the end of the year. They say they may up and unloading as much as $200 billion of high-grade investment-grade securities over the rest of the year. That's been met with a lot of skepticism from others who argue, well, where are they going to go? <laughs> right. But clearly, if IG were to uh, lose uh, interest on the margin, that, that wouldn't be necessarily constructive. It would not be constructive. If, if, if really high-grade corporate debt gets repriced, 
uh, and those yields go higher. I think that's probably the that's like your desert island indicator for me in terms of where the equity markets are valued. Uh, the fact that you have investment grade yields under two and a half percent, you have all these balance sheets that got refreshed or to some degree on some uh, in some instances weighed down by by new debt that bailed them out uh, of a pickle. I, I do think that that would be a significant thing, but it remains to be seen whether there will be any kind of a flight out there, because the overall story is the scarcity of reliable yield and reliable cash flows in the world. That's what uh, is holding things together in the capital markets right now. It's hard for me to know, as you say, where things would go, where they would go, Carl. Yeah, David, I can't imagine you disagree with that. No, I can't. Uh, I, and I don't uh, at this point. Um, you know, again, the one thing that we continue to come back to in terms of activity has been, of course, uh, debt and equity capital markets. We're talking about it right now. The ability of companies, of course, to raise billions of dollars in debt and through the equity markets. Uh, you know, I mentioned this uh, rocket mortgage guys. Remember Dan Gilbert, of course, we know well, frequent guest on Squawk Box through the years, the man who committed himself to sort of trying to rebuild the city of Detroit. This is going to be a boost for them as well. Um, I mean, I've been surprised, I think, some have by the willingness of market participants to flock to some of these IPOs and these companies to come back to market uh, over the last few months. Warner Music, uh, Royalty Pharma, Zoom Info, I mean, you can go on through a number of names. Albertsons didn't go that well. But these are large deals. Uh, and, you know, looking through this S1 this morning, and I can tell you as well, uh, they only put $100 million in there. But this Rocket Mortgage, which owns Quicken Loans, uh, going to be 4 to $6 billion of, of offering. It will be the largest IPO of the year. It could come as soon as the end of the month of July. Uh, and it would have on over 50, roughly, let's call it $50 billion market value. So these are not insignificant companies we're talking about here. Dan Gilbert is going to be even wealthier given he owns a majority of that and a 79% vote when the company does come public. He would still control the vote and a lot of the economics there. Um, but, Mike, the, the, um, uh, the resurgence and the agility or, you know, the of the IPO market has been somewhat surprising, I think, in this current environment. Yeah, and even existing IPOs over the last couple of years, they've done very well as a group. Uh, I think, you know, money managers, individual investors definitely still have an appetite for the differentiated idea, the idea of a, uh, you know, a better mousetrap. I mean, for, for something like Quicken Loans, I mean, obviously, uh, that's a thriving piece of the economy is, is, is mortgages. If they seem to, you know, have a, a more efficient way of, of delivering those things, right, it's, a, it's kind of a, uh, it is not a uh, brick and mortar play, so to speak. So uh, no. you could see where it would, uh, where it would play right now. And, and the way the market is set up, too, it's interesting is, kind of new buzzy ideas get overcapitalized instantly and stuff that's kind of tried and true and you have the you know the high dividend yield stuff whatever it is uh, just gets left aside because there's just no perceived long-term durability uh, to that story so very bifurcated situation guys hmm. yeah we've had a mix between Dun & Bradstreet and Albertsons and and Lemonade and maybe Rocket uh, in the days to come Guys, COVID's the other big story. Obviously, we mentioned U.S. Uh, cases now topping 3 million for the first time. Let's get to our Meg Terrell for an update on everything we know so far today. Hey, Meg. 
Hey, Carl. Well, we are seeing higher case numbers after some depressed numbers coming out of the holiday weekend.、Um, however, you look at it, they are on the rise. Evercore ISI reporting 52,000 new daily cases reported by states in the U.S. yesterday. Whereas, if you look at Johns Hopkins numbers, they put、uh, new daily cases in the U.S. over 60,000. Of course, that is a new record. The test positive rate has also been increasing now at 8.4 percent, according to Evercore ISI. Now, the differences in some of these numbers can be attributed. Attributed to the fact that Johns Hopkins pulls from county-level data, and especially Los Angeles County reported 4,000 new cases yesterday, whereas、uh, the state、uh, only recorded 1,000 of those. So we're going to see a, a bigger number tomorrow. In terms of single、uh, new daily case highs, five states. Um, reaching new records, including Texas, Idaho, Montana, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Texas recording more than 10,000 new daily cases. You can see Florida there also more than 7,000, and California more than 6,000. Although if you factor in those LA County cases, more than 9,500 yesterday from California guys. The hot spots are starting to be spread out a little bit. South Carolina representing two of the fastest growing areas in the country right now. Charleston at number one and Myrtle Beach. At number four, McAllen, Texas, also now making that top five list. Jacksonville, Florida, still on there, and Orlando as well. Whereas most of the big slowdowns still in the Northeast, guys.、Uh, and some concerning news to point to in Arizona: they recorded a record number of daily new deaths yesterday at 117.、Uh, guys, Arizona, of course, was one of the earlier areas where we started to see these concerning case counts rising, and now、uh, the death trend there rising as well. And you see this in Texas. And Florida,、uh, where hospitalizations have also been spiking, so we are starting to see these these numbers catch up to the case growth, guys. Yeah, maybe with more of a lag than some expected, Meg. But、uh, deaths and hospitalizations we'll pay more attention to in the coming days.、Uh, talk to you soon,、uh, Meg Terrell, joining us on COVID this morning. We'll take a quick break here. As we said, futures have been in a pretty tight range all morning long. There is some sell side commentary. Got upgrades of Caterpillar. And Coles today, along with the downgrade of American Express. We're back in a minute. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. Civil rights and activist groups meeting with Facebook on Tuesday called the meeting "quote disappointing." Guys, we got statements from、uh, the NAACP, Color of Change, David, the Anti-Defamation League,、uh, which was just on with、uh, Joe Kernan a moment ago on Squawk. Uh, Mike calling it basically a PR exercise. I'm not sure how high expectations were going into the meeting, though. No, I don't know about、uh, no, expectations know going in、Sorry. in terms of、um, you know in terms of business changes, anything that was going to be durable. What what Facebook might say that was different from what it already has been saying.、Um, you know, and the market is. I think it's、uh, you know watching warily, but not panicking over this. I mean, earnings estimates, by the way, since the end of January for Facebook for this year are down 20 percent. It's not as if people think there's no. Impact from the macro situation in advertising on Facebook, but、uh, it's just and it's underperformed on a one-year basis. Most of the other Fang and megacap tech stocks, but it's not necessarily that people believe anything going on has been, you know, a game changer、uh, for the company's,、uh, you know, business model from here, David. 
No, that's the yeah. It doesn't appear to be a, cha- a game changer. We made the point, of course. Listen, these 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 large brands are well-known advertisers, not insignificant, but there are eight million of them on the Facebook platform. A lot of it is direct response, and for a lot of the advertisers, uh, the return on invested capital is extraordinarily high, far higher than they find on other places, and so it continues to be a question of to whether they're not going to go away. Uh, And that seems to be the expectation, at least of the investors who are unafraid, at least, uh, as to what is going on right now. But but Carl, it was interesting to listen to Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL talk to Joe and, and, you know, and say, listen, right now I can find any number of hate groups, any number of militia groups uh, that want to overthrow the U.S. government on the platform, despite the fact that Facebook keeps telling us they're banning such groups. Yeah, and I was, you know, just t- taking stock of the the moves that the company has made uh, over the last few weeks, guys. They've uh, they've agreed to this audit, obviously, which we've talked about a lot in terms of how they monitor and handle hate speech. They've banned Boogaloo. They're going to try to register four million people to vote this week. Mike, the news was about no longer giving user data to Hong Kong law enforcement. So. Um, I mean, it's not as if they are absolutely standing still. I guess the question is how they're going to meet some of these groups in the middle uh, with the caveat that as a revenue uh, impact, it's, it's going to be de minimis. Yeah. And it's you know, it, it does seem, though, that the company continues to be kind of reactive, ad hoc. Uh, it's kind of discretionary how it's going about it, as opposed to systematic, uh, as opposed to just trying to in a very broad way, filter certain types of content. The company says, like, it doesn't really prefer to have a lot of the objectionable content on the on the site because, you know, advertisers tend not to want to interact very much with that anyway. But it's not necessarily uh, kind of fueling a desire, it seems, by the company to really change uh, the, the fundamental business practices to try and maybe uh, keep it away in a, in a more rigorous way. Yeah. We'll watch the action today, of course, coming off that all-time high yesterday. Take a quick break here on this Wednesday morning. More Squawk on the Street continues in just a couple of minutes. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Here's a tweet from the president a day after pressuring schools to reopen in the fall. He says in Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden and many other countries, schools are open with no problems. The Dems think it would be bad for them politically if U.S. schools open before the November election. But it is important for the children and families may cut off funding if not open. Talk more about that after a break. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Uh, Taking stock of what the president just said, David, about uh, reopening schools in the fall and threatening to cut off funding if they don't. Uh, We did get uh, that uh, 
that meeting yesterday at the White House about just that. A National Education Association later put out a statement saying that there was no clear message nationally on schools and that the administration had no credibility. <clears throat> Who knows how serious he is, but I did notice today that Harvard uh, has filed a lawsuit in district court in Boston on those new ICE rules. So education as a campaign and political issue uh, come September is going to be huge. It's going to be very important. And obviously for the three of us, for example, all with various age children in school, it's just an important life issue as you try to plan your life for September and as the schools try to plan exactly what they can do. Colleges taking different approaches. Uh, and then you come back to something like the New York City public school system, 1.1 million children. There's no way an economy like New York's and or any of these other big cities can get back to anything close to normalcy until those children return to school and their parents can go back to work. But, you know, I'd love to see a case count for Germany and Denmark and some of those other countries that the president mentioned in his tweet, because their new cases, I think, look very different than our own. It's one thing to say that, and I think the schools were certainly planning on full reopenings to the extent that we continue to decline in new cases, not have 60,000 new cases a day, all-time highs that we've seen in this country. That makes planning a lot more difficult. And so the president may say you have to open the schools. I think it's the desire of every local official, every parent that the schools be open. But it's very different when you've got 60,000 new cases a day as opposed to what we've seen in Germany, Denmark, Norway, to a lesser extent, Sweden, which never closed its economy, by the way. Just very different, guys. Um, and a key for our overall economy, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, you can't find anybody who, uh, in an abstract way, says, no, we shouldn't try to open the schools. I do wonder what, uh, what standards, what, what's going to be tolerable in terms of outbreaks, in terms of, uh, of new cases coming out of a school environment. It's going to vary uh, everywhere. And also, I don't know if the withholding of, of federal aid, which is not really uh, generally a very big part of, of local school budgets, uh, is going to be the thing that, uh, that changes that equation, Carl. Yeah, we'll see. HHS did have a uh, announcement yesterday with a big push on testing in areas of uh, Louisiana, Texas and Florida. So uh, that increasingly will be a story, along with PPE equipment uh, for teachers as they try to uh, get kids back into the classroom. Guys, we mentioned some of the cell side calls this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guys decide what you think is most interesting. But uh, I think B of A on Caterpillar, Mike, is a good, where, a good place to start. Upping to neutral, uh, tempering our negativity, they say. They point out there's tons of concerns about uh, broad macro issues, but they can't really deny some of the incremental improvement in econ data. So yeah. they're going to go back and try to hedge their bets on cat. It's kind of a just be careful not to fight what looks like uh, in some areas a strong rebound in the macro environment. Now, we're talking about things like the economic surprise index, which is at record highs, but that just means economic numbers coming in better than forecast, not that uh, the activity level itself is all that strong, but things like the rest of the world coming back. I mentioned earlier the price of copper. That is uh, perhaps a tell uh, that maybe uh, some industrial activity might be reviving. And, and in general, a high liquidity environment where you do have the ISM numbers even uh, improving a little bit. So uh, it's, it's sort of like a let's temper our negativity a little bit. Um, doesn't seem like uh, they're really sold on the idea that we have a multi-year recovery in the end markets for Caterpillar. But, uh, you know, for the stock, maybe it is just about uh, let's not play the downside anymore. Yeah. 
And then you got things like uh, a rare upgrade for Kohl's, David, out of B of A. And their point largely is that their reopening progress versus peers is going to lead to sales outperformance. At the same time, you have the Amex downgrade over at City going to neutral talking about shrinking card balances and obviously the weakness that we know in, in T&E. So uh, even really when, when these sectors mix, you get analysts with very different views on who's going to outperform and who won't. Yeah, I know. Listen, I'm looking at Kohl's right now uh, down, what, 57, 58 percent uh, over the last 12 months. Of course, a $3.2 billion market value now. So that stock has just been crushed already. Whether or not this is fair value at this point, based at least in the hopes of reopening and uh, increased same-store sales growth as a result of that, we'll see. But it has been a challenging path again for Kohl's, as you guys well know, prior to the pandemic. We were talking about this, and Jim was talking about it frequently in terms of the many challenges that <laughs> face that retailer. Yeah, you know, he's been, he's been tough on them of late. Guys, there's the opening bell. As we said, futures really didn't lead us uh, directionally one way or the other this morning, although they did improve as we've gotten closer to the opening bell. Speaking of reopening, David, uh, Disney, with that statement yesterday, they're going to go ahead with this reopening of Disney World on Saturday on a limited basis, uh, even as Florida tops 10,000 cases three times in the last week. And then ESPN tonight returns to live sports uh, with Major League Soccer. Uh, so it was interesting to see uh, Disney's resolve as they've even allowed some previews, I think, from members of uh, theme park media, for lack of a better word, uh, into the Magic Kingdom this week. Yeah, they went through in great detail all the different steps they're taking. Of course, listen, Disney World was clean to begin with. One can only imagine how much it's going to sparkle now. But the key question continues to be how many people will show up their ability to actually have what level of capacity and whether they're going to be able to bring that up over time. Remember how they started as well when they opened Shanghai uh, Disney uh, in terms of how many people were allowed in the park at one time. Parks are very important to this company. So is ESPN at this point. We've talked for many years about, of course, uh, its declining relevance perhaps and or cord cutting and what that's going to mean for ESPN, which is only quickened during this period where there has not been live sports and many people have been home saying, why am I paying for this when I'm not getting anything uh, for it? Um, so plenty of challenges there, not to also mention the production schedule for movies and things of that nature, pulling back, of course, on the uh, cinematic openings of the likes of Mulan, I believe, their second, uh, second one there. Uh, you know, Disney has managed to hold up fairly well, Mike, I think many yeah. people would say. Yes, it's down 21 or so percent, but given the challenges the company's faced, I think many, uh, many are simply saying, OK, we'll look at 2020 as a year where it just was a write off for you guys. But it's Disney and That's you're right. going to come back and everybody's going to come back to Disney. Yeah, um, fair to say. I mean, there, it definitely gets the uh, the kind of quality halo uh, in terms of even though the balance sheet has got more debt than it used to. Uh, it's obviously a survivor. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, people getting excited or have been excited about Disney Plus, even though it's not a financial uh, needle mover for the company very much right now. It seems as if they're in the right places. And I don't think there's any doubt that whatever capacity they decide they can start with uh, at the theme parks, they're probably going to be able to fulfill. And um, and it's just a matter of waiting. And, you know, you also have a lot of these stocks out there that, that seem a little bit binary. I mean, who knows if there's a if there's a lightning in the bottle vaccine 
uh, trial. Where do you think Disney stock's going to go uh, the next day, right? It's, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's got a high up near 150. So uh, I don't think it gets there in a blink, but it's, it's that kind of idea that you have two-way risk in a lot of these stocks tied to reopening uh, possibilities. You've, yeah, you've got to have, if you're a trader, you've got to have a, a, a whole box, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 that you want to go to immediately, a group of, of vaccine stocks, right, that you know will move dramatically on uh, the day, hopefully, that we get a really uh, some positive news. I'll, uh, even what we got from Pfizer a week or so ago about the 24 patients on their, on their vaccine at this point. Yeah. But you're right, Mike. Uh, and, but, you know, for Disney, listen, direct-to-consumer has been a great success. We know that with Disney+. Plus, But they're still spending an enormous amount of money. And your point on leverage is an important one because the leverage ratio at the company is going to hit levels perhaps that it's never really seen. What, over four, maybe perhaps as high as five times. They have added a lot of debt. What, over $17 billion, I think, in issuance since the pandemic began, if I'm not incorrect. And I want to check that, but I think that was the number. So, uh, yeah, there are plenty of challenges there. Um, by the way, on media companies, not a public one, but I come back to it often, I know, and it is connected to Disney in part because Kevin Mayer went to run it, of course, the man who ran direct-to-consumer at Disney, but did not get the top job at the company uh, when Iger stepped down as CEO. Um, Mike, you've got teenage girls, too. Yeah. Carl soon. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know about <laughs> you, but TikTok, what has gone on in this country during the <laughs> yeah. pandemic particularly for that cohort, has been incredible. And if Mike Pompeo is thinking seriously about banning TikTok in the U.S., he's going to have a lot of teenage girls to deal with. And it could get really ugly quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I kid about it in a way, but I also mention it with seriousness because this is an important company that is in the midst, of course, of this political crisis going on in Hong Kong in terms of the Chinese crackdown. Pompeo here saying that he might actually they might move ahead with doing something like that. He's going to be speaking at 10 o'clock this morning. We're going to monitor that as well. But there are companies connected to this that are public, even the likes of a Fastly, which, you know, this content delivery company. Yep. Uh, that is up with 350%. I think TikTok's 10% of their business. Yeah. So if that were to actually happen, not would only the teenage girls get very, very upset, but there would be implications on public companies. Yeah, well. I mean, obviously, one of the, one of the biggest downloads uh, in the U.S., I think like 70% of my interactions with my daughter are them showing me a TikTok video and me not understanding why it's supposed to be funny. Um, so, yeah, that is exactly what, <laughs> yes. uh, what would happen. And it's also, of course, a brand that's gotten politicized, right? Keep in mind, um, you know, TikTokers supposedly were out there misleading the Trump campaign about the Oklahoma uh, rally and what the attendance was going to be. So it's a, it's a dicey one, uh, for sure, not just because because of U.S.-China uh, relations. Yeah. And this is a hundred, you know, of, people uh, talk, uh, Carl, about this being a $150 billion market value if and when it were to uh, come public, something like that. So we're talking about an enormous media company, Carl. Yeah, I know it's hard to imagine that Mayor would have left for anything less. Uh, certainly, as you pointed out many times this week, uh, being dealt a hand that maybe he didn't expect even knowing some of the risks about going to a company uh, like TikTok. By the way, the president follows up on his school tweet, guys, saying, I disagree with CDC on their very tough and expensive guidelines for opening schools. While they want them open, they're asking schools to do very impractical things. I will be meeting with them. So we'll look for progress on that, even as he uh, does meet with the president of Mexico today. And we, we expect a press conference uh, later on. Uh, David, sort of in the media circles as well, Spotify, we've been talking about them a lot in this podcast strategy. Uh, now we have this $20 million yes. deal with Omnicom. 
um, giving Omnicom basically first mover access to exclusive podcast content. So a really interesting debate about uh, what the return is going to be on, I guess, what some would argue is a, a somewhat risky strategy on podcasts. It, it certainly felt like sort of a, a, yeah, a diversion to some extent. I remember the day that Daniel Eck came on with, with Jim and, and I when we were at the NYC uh, and talked about their investment. It has only increased substantially since then. The Joe Rogan deal, of course, perhaps being the biggest headline, uh, Carl. But it has worked, at least in terms of capturing the attention of investors and potentially advertisers. As well, the technology has changed to the extent that you can uh, target ads a lot uh, more effectively uh, on these podcasts, which I think appeals as well uh, to advertisers. This is one reason why Omnicom is, is looking for what is it that, that spend at this point on those podcasts. But we've talked a lot about Spotify and its huge move up uh, on, the, on the back of podcasting, yeah. not necessarily music. And of course, what the implications are for the likes of a Warner Music and others, unclear. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but certainly been very positive for the company. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so Spotify with a $50 billion market cap, it seems as if the market is somewhat giving it credit for following the Netflix path. If you look back when Netflix first got to $50 billion market cap, I think it was five years ago, uh, and that was at the time when wasn't there tremendous controversy over what Netflix was doing in terms of originals and believing that originals were its future. Spotify podcast, in a sense, is, is originals for, for, for Spotify, for the, the platform, and for them trying to get out of this kind of commoditization trap of just being a distributor. So who knows if it works? Who knows if it's got, you know, Netflix-type subscriber numbers down the road? But it seems like it's, it's, it's that kind of template uh, that they're trying to follow. Maybe the market's giving them credit for figuring that out, Carl. All right, guys, let's get to Rick Santelli, uh, who we've missed the last couple of days. Rick, good morning. Good morning, Carl. Indeed. You know, if we look at what's going on in treasuries, obviously many are continuing to look outside of treasuries, especially on the safe harbor. Yields just aren't juicy enough, potentially, as we see gold at some of the best levels since 2011. But I will warn, you know, if you go back to 1980, gold had a high of about $835. Well, if you adjust that for inflation, we still haven't taken it out. So there's a lot of issues at play here. Look at a week to date of 10-year note yields. Now, hovering at 66 basis points, we just moved into the uh, green in terms of we settled at 65 yesterday. So yields are a bit higher. Prices are a bit lower. But we are at the lowest level since the end of last month. And on the Jobs Thursday report, we were as high intraday as 71 basis points. So you can see uh, that is the high watermark, and it really has proven to be. We always seem to get the juiciest yields, whether it was over 90 basis points in that original report when we saw the surprising growth in jobs. If we look at what's going on in credit in general, here's a year-to-date chart, a Barclays spread chart of investment grade. And you can see that even though we're not below 100, here we hover uh, around 145-ish, and these are really competitive. As a matter of fact, if you add 141 basis points onto your favorite corporate security, not only are the yields fairly juicy, but of course, they they start to really add up when you look at the long-dated 30-year bond, which is hovering at a yield right around 140 basis points. Even the high yield, as you see on the spread chart here from Barclays, hovering a bit over 600 basis points, meaning you stack 600 basis points on top of treasuries, and that's going to give you the maturity yield value for any corporate security you're looking at. And whether it's the HYG or JNK, 
ETFs, they have underperformed, just as you see on this chart. Investment grade right now is king, huge demand, and we'll continue most likely to see that. And finally, when we think about foreign exchange, yes, the dollar index has really been in a range, not a very strong range, but still up just a bit for the year. But a lot of the action of late has been in the comparative trade as we see some spikes on coronavirus in our country. Here's our currency versus the Chinese yuan. We are close to the worst levels in four months since mid-March. And this is something truly to pay attention to. It isn't only whether the remnants of the trade deal are still intact, but there's a lot of handicapping going on between our economy, the European economy, the Asian economies, of course, what's going on in China. So we can try to handicap whose companies are going to be those better growth companies as we try to get on the other side of the effects of the virus. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thanks. Talked in a little while. Uh, so we're back to 26K as uh, Microsoft and Apple deliver the mail once again. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Yeah, uh, Carl, the most important thing here is we're seeing the continuing dominance of the tech names and particularly semiconductors and mega cap tech names and the struggle for the cyclical names. The real problems the banks are having, industrial stocks are continuing to have uh, and uh, energy stocks a- as well. So here you see uh, techs again dominating consumer discretionary which is tech oriented healthcare is doing a little bit better today that's interesting but remember biotech's been on a tear recently and there you see energy's just barely on the upside banks now in essentially flat but acting horribly uh, in the last uh, month or so mega caps here of course we got the new highs essentially on on apple and microsoft uh, as well as uh, uh, amazon but you see every single day when these stocks move up 1% and they're almost 20% of the S&P 500, that's going to move the overall index. I mentioned tech in July. It's very hard to keep moving the market up when essentially you've got a bunch of semiconductors and mega cap names moving. But that's really what's going on here. You look at Salesforce or NVIDIA or Akamai or Microsoft or Apple. This is just in a few trading days uh, on the upside, and they tend to help move the market forward. Meantime, banks are just acting horribly. The regional banks are back towards uh, where they were uh, in uh, late May before they had a modest rally. They've all fallen back now. These are all V inverted V shapes, Zion, Huntington. These are the big super regionals, Fifth Third, PNC. This is just in the last few trading days. This is July that I'm talking about. Uh, so you can see the declines there. Industrials, similar, but there's a little bit of a bifurcation. Yes, you've got the problems with the airlines and some of the big global industrials like Textron, a very good bellwether to watch. Lockheed and aerospace is tough. But then we have the logistics and shipping companies. FedEx has behaved very well since it's uh, since its earnings report, even though we have problems, of course, shipping to businesses, in- individuals are doing well. UPS also been doing well. Uh, and logistics like Robinson, they've also uh, all been up. So a little bit of bifurcation in the industrials. Overall, where are we in summer trading, folks? The uh, minute we had the quadruple witching at the end of June here, we had a much narrower trading range. We had lighter volume uh, and breadth fairly unimpressive. This is very characteristic uh, of what happens after the quadruple witch uh, in June here. David was mentioning the rocket mortgage. I find this fascinating, and he's right. This could be the largest IPO of the year. We don't know yet, but it's going to be north of $2 billion here. We've had some big IPOs this year. That Royalty Pharma, $2.2 billion. Warner uh, was almost $2 billion. Uh, Dun & Bradstreet, one set, one point. Albertsons was really big as well. Why is a mortgage company so interesting? Why is it garnering so much attention? It's not so much the mortgage. It's fintech. It's that magic word, fintech mortgage companies. And some of these fintech consumer stocks have done really well. Look what happened to Lemonade recently. They're renter's insurance, folks. I mean, 
talk about not getting excited, but look how well it's done. Select quote does essentially insurance as well, Medicare related. It's done really well since its IPO. So why wouldn't a mortgage company that has got very respectable brand name behind it also garner a lot of interest? My point is you got fintech, you got uh, uh, consumer, you've got IPO market that's hot, you have a stock market that's moving up. It's little wonder why you're getting companies out there that are reporting, and particularly when you get returns like this, and yes, these are all either tech-oriented or biotech-oriented in the case of Moderna, as you see uh, right there. Uh, The IPO ETF, meanwhile, hitting um, historic highs. This is a basket of about 60 stocks of IPOs that have gone public uh, just in the last usually two years. That's about the cutoff point. So we're also got some reports today, uh, Palantir yesterday, but some reports Alibaba's ant unit may be filing in Hong Kong. We don't have a confirmation on that yet, but there are reports out there. Uh, The SEC is going to be holding a roundtable tomorrow discussing uh, some of the issues around emerging market companies, particularly Chinese companies listing in the uh, United States. The SEC is unhappy about the fact that their regulators don't have access uh, to the auditors and to the auditing reports of Chinese companies that list in the United States. There is a movement afoot to get very serious and push back on that. And maybe some of these new listings in Hong Kong is a response to concerns about that. I'll be covering that tomorrow, Carl, but this whole thing is heating up. Remember, uh, Marco Rubio's got a bill out there that would force the SEC to delist companies from China that don't follow U.S. regulatory rules. That's a big issue. Back to you. Uh, Huge. Uh, Thanks, Bob. We'll see you a little bit later, Bob Pisani. We'll take a break here. Uh, Back above 26K. Thanks to Apple this morning. Deutsche does up their target, and Apple has now had seven record closes since the beginning of June. We're back in a moment. Harvard and MIT have uh, sued uh, Department of Homeland Security over those new ICE rules. Let's get to our Robert Frank this morning. Hey, Robert. Good morning, Carl. As you said, Harvard and MIT both filing that lawsuit against the Trump administration this morning over the decision to revoke visas for international students who are taking online classes. Now, Harvard President Larry Backhouse saying the plan is, quote, its cruelty is surpassed only by its recklessness and said it was an effort by the Trump administration to force colleges to open without concern for student or faculty health. Now, the lawsuit seeks a temporary restraining order against this decision from ICE, which revokes student visas for those taking all classes online. Now, international students at Harvard, for instance, which is switching to online only in the fall, would be deported or forced to transfer. Now, overseas students still outside the country are barred from entering if all their classes are online. And this is all important because there are more than one million foreign college students in the U.S. They account for 15 to 20 percent of enrollment at many schools and even a larger share of tuition since they pay full fare and spend $45 billion a year just on school costs. Now, under the rules, if a student course load is not entirely online, students can stay. So students at the University of Washington came up with a novel solution yesterday launching a petition to create a one-credit in-person course with only one meeting a quarter and excused absences that would get around that visa roll so far. They've uh, had 14,000 signatures. And guys, another problem here is that students who are in uh, in the U.S. and forced to go home sometimes can't go home because of the travel restrictions from COVID. Robert, I heard you this morning uh, talking about possible motivations on the part of ICE, whether it's to go back to where we can try to crack down on online class fraud, essentially, or just simply pressuring the schools to open in the first place. 
That's right. So this is not a new rule. It simply reverts back to the pre-pandemic rule, which stated that if you were just taking online classes, you couldn't get a visa. But many think that this is an effort to really force schools to open or perhaps get more seats at these colleges for U.S. students. We just don't know the answer. Uh, it's a big story today, Robert. Thanks. We'll talk to you a little bit later, our Robert Frank today. Uh, coming up later this morning on Squawk Alley, we'll talk to the head of Slack, Stuart Butterfield. Make sure you join us for that uh, coming up in the 11 a.m. Eastern hour. Back in a moment. Levi CEO Chip Berg will join us in just a few moments as the company sees a 62% drop in sales, cuts 15% of its workforce, impacting about 700 jobs. Uh, an exclusive at the top of the hour. Let's bring in Wells Fargo Investment Institute Senior Global Market Strategist Samir Samana now, about 25 minutes into today's uh, trade. Samir, uh, good to see you really uh, playing to type today, this market, growth leading value, the S&P kind of in this same range. You've been in for a few weeks. Uh, How would you play it and what's priced in heading into earnings season? Sure. I I think the range part is is probably the key part here. We just don't see a market between now and year end that's going to break out really either higher or lower. Um, Clearly, what's keeping it constrained kind of from breaking out is COVID and then some of these issues around the elections. And what will probably keep it from breaking down will be the Fed and policymakers. And so you you try and kind of figure out what areas might continue to be in kind of secular uptrends. Um, And you guys have talked about a lot of them this morning, right? I mean, if you look at technology, that's our most favorable sector. And then if you look at consumer discretionary, especially parts of e-commerce, um, home improvement, those have done well, communications, um, right, social media, et cetera, uh, healthcare and the financials. That's kind of our playbook for the remainder of the year and probably even beyond. Um, but again, we don't see a breakout until you probably get past the elections. Financials would be the outlier there, though, in those sectors that you mentioned in terms of this persistent weakness, uh, Treasury yields remaining very, very compressed. What changes the story there? Because, you know, the good news on the banks is that, you know, they're well capitalized. The bad news is that capital's there to be burned up in credit losses if things don't go right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. We like the valuations there. Now, the tricky part is they, they're cheap for a reason. Um, if, as you mentioned, those losses start to, to tick up and there is, you know, call it a, a much more severe recession than what we expect right now. But at least uh, our base case for now is that Q2 was the trough. Um, Q3 is a recovery. And then we kind of settle into um, kind of that steady eddy growth rate that we saw kind of pre-COVID um, as we kind of learned to deal with the, these coronavirus you know, outbursts. Um, so again, it's more of a value play. It's maybe a longer term horizon play than some of the others, um, but it kind of helps to round out the exposure. Five Chinese stocks taking off. You have European numbers starting to look a little bit better. Where's the, the global allocation uh, wisdom sit right now? Sure. So we've been unfavorable on both developed market equities and emerging market equities. Now, one of the things that's starting to change around the edges that we're starting to to kind of think about is the dollar, right? If the dollar were to break down meaningfully, this regime that it's kind of been in since 2017 to the upside, um, if it kind of goes back to um, the weakness that we saw in 2017, clearly the playbook would have to shift, right? It would be much more about emerging markets, developed markets, and large caps over small caps. We're not quite there yet, but that's probably the factor to watch is the dollar. We don't think, much like the, the markets, it's going to have a meaningful breakdown just because you do have um, other central bankers also trying to protect their currencies. But if that were to happen, um, that's the key to, to start moving internationally. Yeah, dollar index, another thing that looks like uh, it's pretty much stuck in a range. Samir, uh, thanks a lot for your time this morning. And Carl. All right, Mike, thanks for the help this hour. We'll see you tomorrow or later on today. Mike Santoli. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.